morning. How's everyone doing? Good. Great. Well, we are continuing our By Faith series, which uh, Chris kicked us off so well last week by looking at uh, Cain and Abel. And uh, there should be a PowerPoint up there that kind of gives away where we're going today. It's the story of Noah jumping off of a cliff. I'm sure you know that great biblical story very well. We are looking at the story of Noah uh, this morning. So uh, without any further ado, I'm going to read uh, one verse from Hebrews, which is where this series is, is based in. Um, but you might want to have uh, a finger or you might want to scroll to Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 7 or engage with the word of God in whichever modern way you engage with the word of God. Uh, I wonder in 15, 20 years, we won't be saying, well, what would we be saying then? So turn on your, I don't know, I've digressed already. Right, let's turn. Hebrews chapter 11 and uh, the verse there, it says, if I can find my notes, it says there, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. And then if you can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, we'll just read uh, some of this story, starting in uh, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah, who was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, just to help you with that. That is longer than a standard football pitch. Okay, so I don't know, I'm sure many of you were watching football yesterday. The ark was longer than a football pitch, 300 cubits. Uh, its breadth, uh, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set a door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wives, and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kind, and of the animals according to their kind, of every creeping thing on the ground, according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you and keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that the God commanded him. And then jumping down to chapter 7 and verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, 
in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On that very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. And every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to its kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Father, thank you for this word this morning. Just pray that you bless us as we study it and as we understand what it means to live and work by faith. Amen. I want to say a couple of things about this story before we start, especially this morning if you not yet a Christian, or maybe you've just recently joined the church and you're reading this story for the first time, because there's some quite incredible things in here. A man, 600 years old, building an ark in a desert, filling it with two of every sort of animal, a flood that covers the whole world, rain that comes down for 40 days. We just got to be up front and say, this is a little bit weird. And if you haven't read this story before, you're going to find it a little bit weird. So before we kick off, I want to help you a little bit to understand this story. You see, there are many, many cultures in the world that actually have in their origins a flood myth, a story of the flood. There's a lot of archaeological, there's a lot of literary evidence of a flood that happened around about 3000 BC. We're reading this in the Hebrew Bible or a modern translation of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, but the, uh, uh, the Sumerians have the, the Gilgamesh myth. The Chinese have the Gunyu flood. Uh, the Norse have the legend of Belgimir. All of these talk of a flood that hit that area, the Mesopotamian basin region, around about 3000 BC. There's a lot of literary evidence to support that. There's also, if you are Christians and you trust in the word of God, there's a lot of scriptural evidence to support the person of Noah. See, as Christians, we find it very helpful when scripture reinforces scripture. And see, Noah isn't just spoken of in isolation in Genesis. We've already read that verse in Hebrews where Noah is spoken of. He's also spoken of in 1 Peter. And more importantly, in Luke chapter 17, Jesus himself speaks of Noah as a person. Jesus, talking of the end days, the end times, said, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the end days. So there's a lot of literary, there's a lot of scriptural evidence for a person called Noah having lived, for an event that was a big flood. Now, whether that covered the whole literal world or whether that covered the the occupied world at the time, which was the Mesopotamian basin. I'll, I'll let you decide that. But there's a lot of evidence to support these events. Now, I hope that helps. Uh, so if you have questions concerning um, how we read Genesis in the light of kind of modern day thinking, then I'm not going to cover too much of that today. But if you've got those questions, then please grab me afterwards, grab me over coffee. If you want to talk about things like, uh, were there dinosaurs on the ark? 
Uh, how did the polar bears get on the ark? That was a long trek from the north. If you've got those sort of questions, then, then I'm actually not going to ask them. That You're probably thinking about those now, aren't you? For the first time, you're thinking, yeah, how did the polar bears get on the ark? So, so I'm not going to do that this morning, okay? I'm going to read the story as it's written, as it's recorded in Scripture. But if you've got those questions, then please uh, come and ask me. You see, in many ways, this is a twofold story. This is the kind of key to what I want to do this morning. Because this is a series about men and women who acted by faith, who heard God and did great things. That's, that's the theme, that's the message that runs through this series. But actually it's a twofold story because it's not just the story of men and women who acted by faith and did great things. It's the fact that as a result of that, God did great things. You see, when God calls us to act by faith, it isn't just that we can say, hey, didn't I do well? It's so that God can do something amazing through our faith. You see, the, the truth is we have a God that can do pretty much what he likes. He chooses to work through us. He chooses to say, I will do great things by your acts of faith. And that's really the message that I want to talk about this morning. You see, Noah acts by faith. We, we've read the story. Many of you, I am sure, know the story and know the details of the story. But what I want to look at this morning is what did God do as a result of Noah's faith? Because God introduces into the world three things that have never been seen before. Three things come into the world that have never been there before. We haven't got much of a story so far. We're in Genesis 6, so we've kind of got only five chapters. If you want to catch up with the story so far, Genesis 1 to 5 will fill you in on where we are so far. There's not much of the story. But three things come into the world through the acts of Noah. That's rest, it's covenant, and it's salvation. Now you might say, well, they don't sound very exciting. I'd much rather talk about the polar bears. But where we're going this morning is rest, covenant, and salvation. You see, the first thing that God is able to introduce into the world is rest. Now, uh, we've seen rest already. We've only got five chapters. We've seen rest already. God created the world in six days, it tells us, and he rested on the seventh day. But you see, so far for, for mankind, there hasn't been a lot of rest. We've been running around, mankind's been running around. Adam and Eve had, a, had that, mo that brief moment of rest in the garden. But through their sin, they, they were expelled and, and they're told that they're going to have to work the land now for a living. And, and life is hard. And not only is life hard, but men and women just seem to be running around sinning, uh, committing violence, getting further and further away from God. And God says, I've had enough of this. I'm going to destroy this world. There just doesn't seem to be any rest here. There doesn't seem to be any peace here. But the word rest and the idea of rest is, comes very strongly in this passage. It actually appears in the first verse that I read there. The idea of rest is mentioned four times. Can you see it? These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Do you see rest there? You probably don't, thank you, because we don't read Hebrew. I don't read Hebrew. 
But you see, the Hebrew word for Noah is rest. So you can read that as these are the generations of rest. Rest was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Rest walked with God and rest had three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. See, in Scripture, names are important. We, a lot of us miss this because we come from an anglicized Western culture. Uh, I don't have a middle name, okay? I don't have a middle name. My mother tells me, I don't know if it's true or not, but my mother tells me that I was premature. That was true. I was three weeks premature. So she didn't have time to work out a middle name, okay? Sorting out a first name was tough enough when you had a baby, okay? So I got called Ken, no middle name. My sister has a middle name. She wasn't Prem. I was no middle name. I, I've, I've, lived, I've lived with it, okay, for 50 years. I'm, I'm kind of comfortable with it, but I don't have a middle name. Ken, well, okay, so our names don't kind of mean anything. Kenneth actually means handsome. I'll let you work out where that one goes. <laughs> now, but our names don't mean a lot. But in Scripture, names are very important. Some of you will probably come from cultures where names do mean something where you have children or you were named as a result of prayers or prophecies that were given over you. You have names like hope or grace or charity, beautiful names that actually mean something. And you see, names in Scripture mean things. Eve means giver of life. Abraham means father of many nations. David means beloved. Abigail means my father's joy. Jesus means the Lord saves. And Noah means rest. And you see, God is giving a promise here. He's saying that through this man, there will be rest. And this is the promise for us, all of us as Christians, that outside the other end of judgment will come a place of rest. You know, we probably at the moment don't have very restful lives. Noah, in the midst of the flood, didn't have a very restful time. I don't know if you imagine what it was like on the ark. It was probably noisy. It was probably smelly. The boat was rocking to and fro so that I guess most of these folks were probably seasick because they'd never been in an ark before. And in the midst of that, you can't even put your head out the window and get some fresh air because it's chucking down with rain. So it wasn't very peaceful on the ark. And our lives are not restful. Looking after children is wearisome. It's wearing, forgive us guys, but looking after young children is tough. Caring for elderly parents is tough. Going to work each day, commuting each day is tough. Working at home, trying to balance all the things that you have to do, the 101 tasks you have to do at home is tough. Working out how to do the 20 that you can't do because you're busy doing the other 100, that's tough. And for us, you see, we need to know that out the other side of a place of turmoil and torment is a place of rest. That's the hope for the Christian. Why is it called an ark? 
Have you ever wondered that? Why don't we just call it a ship or a boat? That's out of Mark and Julie's. Can I call it a boat or a ship? I need to be careful here. Nautical terms. It's one of the two, okay? We'll call it a boat. I feel you'll forgive me. We didn't wander around the harbour saying, oh, look at that rather neat ark. <laughs> they're boats or they're ships. Why do we call it an ark? Again, it's a very particular Hebrew word. And there's only one other instance in Scripture when that word is used. And it's used to describe the basket into which Moses was put when his mother put him into the Nile to protect him from Pharaoh, who was trying to kill all the children. That basket was an ark. We read in the passage that the, the ark was covered in pitch. Seems like a sensible thing for us to do. We kind of, probably not all sailors here, but the idea of something on water needing to be watertight makes a little bit of sense. Cover it with pitch. Again, there's only one time in Scripture where something being covered in pitch is mentioned. It's Moses' basket that's covered in pitch to make it watertight. And you see, what the writer is doing, he's trying to join the dots for us. He's trying to connect Noah to Moses to us and say, here is a theme. This is what God is doing. This is what God is introducing into the world. This idea that through judgment, through turmoil, through going through the waters, you will come to a place of rest. Out the other side of judgment is a place of rest. Secondly, God introduces into the world covenant. Now, a covenant is a promise. God promises in chapter 9 to not destroy the world again. He gives this word to, uh, to, to Noah. We didn't read this passage uh, out there, but it's in Genesis chapter 9. And God says, after the flood has subsided, after the ark has come to rest, you notice that that's the verse there, the ark came to rest. The ark Noahed on Mount Ararat. But in chapter 9, God says this, he says, I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. See, God is promising that he's not going to destroy mankind. And we might think in our human sense that promises again are not that big a deal. But you see, promises to God are really important. Covenants to God are really important. Because God is true and holy and just. And he can't go back on his word. So when God promises to do something, or when God promises not to do something, that's absolutely how it's going to be. It's stronger than any of the laws that we might write. You, you get people that go to court, and when the, when the judgment doesn't go the, their way, they appeal to a higher court, and they appeal to a higher court. The highest court that you can appeal to is God, who says, when I say something will happen, it will happen, and when I say something will not happen, it won't happen. And so God is making this covenant not to destroy the world. And there's lots of covenants in the Bible, but there's five big covenants 
that God makes with mankind. And this is the first one. He's saying, I'm not going to destroy mankind. There's four other covenants. And those four other covenants, they basically say, how's God going to do that? How's God going to make that happen? Because see, what happens is what God is saying, he says, I'm not going to destroy mankind again. That's, that, that's, that's actually quite limiting for God. Because how does God then deal with sin? How does God deal with wrongdoing? Because God has just destroyed the world and you've got Noah and his family and that's all that exists of mankind. But pretty soon more generations come along and sin is going to grow again and men and women are going to rise up and they're going to do wrong. We have a book and a history of men and women who rise up and do wrong. How is God going to deal with that? The easy option is to destroy it. But God says, I'm not going to do that. I promise I'm not going to do that. We've got a great garden at the back of our house that is 100% the result of Valentina's care and attention. Okay, I am not the gardener. I do not have the concept of gardening in my genes. I've spent our marriage trying to explain that fact, but I still get taken out in the garden with a list of things to do. And what I have concluded about gardening with my limited knowledge, is that there are two strategies. There's two things that you can do with gardening, okay? You can either rip up and destroy the stuff that shouldn't be there, or you can tend and care and fertilize and weed and look after the stuff that should be there. That's my sum knowledge of gardening. Now, now I get this wrong. I am very good at ripping up the stuff that shouldn't be ripped up. I pulled up this one, dear. It was a really big weed. No! And uh, I've done all the weeds. Well, what's that thing over there? Oh, I thought that was a plant. You see how I get this wrong? But, but those are the two strategies. You either rip up or you fertilize and care for. And what God is saying when he says, I'm not going to destroy the world again, he's saying that option is off the table. The only thing that's left for me to do when faced with sin and sinners, is to transform them and change them and make them something that's better. Have you ever wondered why, or asked God, why he just doesn't deal with all the sin in the world? God, why don't you just destroy all those bad people? Why don't you just wipe out the sinners? Have you ever thought that, or is that just me? Because actually, if God did that, he'd have to start with me. And he'd have to start with you. Because there's sin in here, and there's bad thoughts in here, and there's wrong ways of thinking in here. And God says, no, that option is off the table. I'm only ever going to transform and change. You know, the parable of the barren fig tree in Luke 13. It's a story there of, of the owner that comes to his, his allotment or his, his field, whatever you call it. I'm not, you see, I'm not a gardener. Uh, he, he comes to his fig tree, okay? And, and there's no figs on the fig tree. So he says to the gardener, rip it up. Throw it away. It's not produced any fruit. I'm with the guy on this point, yeah? I, I get this one. Rip it up. There's no fruit. And the gardener says, no, let me tend for it. Let me fertilize it. Let me care for it. Let me look after it. It's kind of a cliffhanger ending, isn't it? You know, if there's Western English people, we had written the Bible... Luke 14 would all be about, did the fig tree get any fruit? 
We don't know. I really want to know, next year, did this fig tree have any figs or not? We don't know. But you see, the point of the story is not, next year, were there figs on the fig tree or not? The point of the story is two strategies. There's only ever two strategies. You destroy or you care and you tend. And when God says, I'm not going to destroy you anymore, he says, this is how it's going to be. I'm going to transform you and I'm going to change you. And that's his big covenant. And the other four covenants, they actually say, how is he going to do that? There's the covenant with Abraham that says, I'm going to do this through making a nation that can take the word of who I am to the world. He does it through the covenant to Moses that says, I'm going to have a special nation of princes and priests who are going to demonstrate my values and my qualities. He does it through the covenant to David, which says, from you, from you, David, will come a king who will reign forever on the throne. Talking of Jesus. And through the new covenant, he says to you and I, I'm going to change you by filling you with my Holy Spirit so you don't even want to sin in the first place. You see, the last four covenants explain how God is going to keep his first covenant of how he's going to destroy sin without destroying you. And that gets promised here. God brings rest. God brings covenant. God also brings salvation. This is a salvation story. The verse in Hebrews tells us that. Noah built an ark and through that his family were saved. It's, it's a salvation story. But we need to look at this a little bit closer. We need to understand what God is saying there. And I wonder if you noticed as we read the story how active God was in making this happen. Because yes, this is a story about faith. It's about a man building an ark. It's, a man, it's about a man doing incredible things. But you see, Noah did not wake up one morning and think, you know what I should do today? I know I'll build a boat or an ark. God was involved in this. God took the initiative. In chapter 6 and verse 13, God informs Noah of what he's going to do. God says, I'm going to send a flood. It's going to destroy the world. In verse 14, he tells Noah to build an ark. In verse 15 and 16, he gives him very exact instructions on how to build an ark. Again, uh, I said I'm not going to dip, dip into the, the science and the, uh, uh, the joining together the story with our modern day thinking, but um, I, I read somewhere that, that modern, um, I don't know, boat builders have looked at the dimensions of the ark, that 100 by 50 by 30, and they've kind of concluded that if you wanted to build a vessel that would simply float in the most stable way, those are actually the dimensions that you would use. Got that one out there. But you see, God gives Noah these precise instructions. Uh, and then very interestingly, in verse 13, Noah, uh, sorry, God tells Noah to go into the ark. And if we look at verse 7, in chapter 13, I'll read it out here. I don't think I've got it on the slide here. But it says, uh, And rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. This is chapter 7, verse uh, 13. 
On that very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wives, entered the ark. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? It's raining, let's enter the ark. But if you read back at the beginning of chapter 7, it says there, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark. Now, I don't know if the rain came first, and Noah looked up and said, it's raining, I've spent a couple of hundred years building this boat, sounds like a good idea to go into it now. I don't know if the rain came first and then the penny dropped with Noah, or if God actually said to Noah, Noah, now go into the ark because the rains are coming. Somebody probably wiser than me can kind of tell you which one happened. One of them happened. But I like to think that God was involved in this and God said to Noah, go into the ark. Do you see how God is involved in this story at every step? And then this great verse at the end, where Noah goes into the ark and it says, and God shut him in. God shut him in. Noah didn't close the door. God shut him in. And you see, that's what's happened for many of us as we've trusted in Jesus for our salvation. We have been shut into Jesus. You see, when the rains came down and, and the floods came, uh, the house on the rock stood still. Sorry, that one just blasts from the past. Do you remember that one? Never mind. Um, when the rains came down and looked at the ark, what did they see? You see, they didn't see Noah because he was hidden in the ark. And see, that's true for us as Christians. When God looks down from heaven, at a sinful world, at sinful men and women, what does he see? Does he see us? No, because we're hidden in Christ. That's what scripture says. We're hidden in Christ. We're covered in him. So God looks down and he sees his son. The floods look down and they see the ark. And this is a salvation story that through the waters, we come out the other side to a place of rest and to a place of salvation. I said that Noah is uh, mentioned in 1 Peter, or mentioned in Peter. It's actually mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 3. And it talks there, again, Peter is writing to, to the people that he's writing to uh, about Noah. And he says in 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 20, he says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. We know that, we've just read the story. But then he goes on to say, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we need to be really clear here, and Peter is making the point here, that we are not saved through being baptised. Baptism doesn't save you. But baptism is a confirmation of the salvation that has already happened. But Peter is making this very clear link between Noah and baptism. He's jumping from Genesis at the beginning of the Bible to 1 Peter pretty near at the end of the Bible. It says, this is the same story. It's kind of if you grab that bit of the Bible and kind of stick a pencil through it. Don't do this to your Bibles, but stick a pencil through it. So you join Genesis to 1 Peter, and he says, that's the story. 
That's the story that we are saved through the water, through God bringing us to this place of rest, to this place of salvation. And Noah was brought through the flood to a new creation. The people of Israel, through Moses, Moses was in his little ark and brought to a place of safety. But later on, Moses would lead the people of Israel through the Red Sea, the seas that parted. He would lead them through the water to a promised land flowing with milk and honey. And we are brought through the waters of baptism, not as salvation in itself, but as an affirmation of that salvation, to a place of rest and security and salvation. It's a salvation story. And it's a salvation story that touches all of creation. You see, we read in Romans that creation is groaning. Creation is groaning. Creation itself knows that kind of this world needs to be renewed. And that's what God does as he makes the world new. And we read in the passage there of this three-decked boat. I mean, again, we skipped over that one when we missed the context here because we don't have a Hebrew background. We don't have the cultural background to understand what's being said here when he said, build the, build the boat with upper and middle and lower decks. You see, that in itself is a picture. You see, the ancient Hebrews, the ancient cultures would understand creation as having three levels. There was the land on which man dwelled, there were the waters above, and there were the waters below. Creation had three levels. And so this picture of a three-decked boat is a picture of a, cre a recreation within the creation that's being renewed. And that's what God says he's doing. He says, I'm renewing creation, but in the midst of it, I will keep this mini-creation safe with Noah and his wife and his sons and their sons. And all of creation will then be renewed. So it's not just the creation of a man and his family. It's, it's not just the salvation of a man and his family. It's the salvation of the world. It's also a salvation that in many ways is timeless. It's an interesting question. It's a bit of a, a Christian jargon, isn't it? And we don't, we don't use it. Richard might have managed it a bit more on your Pentecostal background in churches. But brother, are you saved? Do we use that phrase? Brother, are you saved? Have you been saved? The kind of tenses and the verbs. We kind of... Uh, Creation is a little bit more than just, are you saved? Um, Zoya, where's Zoya? You're struggling with, uh, with English language, doing such a good job, telling me the other day she, she's learning uh, English verbs and it suddenly all made sense. Suddenly, uh, I don't think English verbs make sense to us who are English. Hey, Zoe, I think, is, is making it work with, with Russian. So well done there. But, but these tenses and these verbs, I, I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. There's this much bigger picture of salvation. You see, there came this moment when Noah is being tossed in the ark, when he would have asked the question, am I saved? And the answer was yes. You've been saved from the rain. The, west, the rest of humanity has drowned, but you have been saved. But the question could also be asked, am I being saved? Yes, I am in the process of being saved as this boat is tossed 
and rocked and buffeted by the waves. I am in the very midst of being saved. And there came this moment when the boat would have come to rest, the gangplank would have gone down, Noah would have walked down the gangplank into a new creation and said, yes, I'm saved. I just have this picture of Noah walking down the gangplank. Do you think he just wandered down the gangplank and had a quick mosey round and said, oh, this looks pretty cool? Or do you think he was rejoicing? Do you think he was pumping the air and saying, God, thank you for what you have done. Thank you for what you have saved me from. He looks back at the ark and says, I never want to go back in there again. It's smelly and it's dirty and I was seasick. Thank you for what you have saved me from. Thank you for this new world. And so each one of us, that's our story. Yes, we are saved. We are saved. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you have been saved. Past tense. Christ's death on the cross has achieved that for you. Are you being saved? Every single day. We are being saved as we walk by faith. Lord, thank you for what you're saving me from even today. Thank you for what you're going to save me from tomorrow. Thank you for the way you're going to save me constantly through my daily walk with you until there comes a point where we can stand on our gangplank and say, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Hallelujah. If you don't know Jesus this morning, then I would really encourage you to speak to someone that has brought you, speak to one of the leadership team here, come and speak to me about what it means to be.